Wow. Wow. Nothing makes me feel more loved than uh, a, a kind word from my, my boss. <laughs> Man, it's so good to be here with you today. I, 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 I'm excited. I get, to, I get to preach. It's been a year since I've preached, so I've got a lot to say. Buckle up. Uh, over the next three hours... No, I'm just kidding. I won't keep you here three hours. Maybe two, two and a half. We'll see. But I'm ready to go. I've got my, I've got my, my digital sermon. I've got my analog sermon. For those of you who have, uh, are you doing this back in the day? So, okay, so here's, here's the deal. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be digging into Scripture and talking about the, the part of our heart that is, is maybe not so, not so good, the part of our heart that tends to complain and argue. So I just kind of thought maybe this would be fun. Maybe it's not. I want to know, like, what are the things that your kids complain and argue about? What are those things? You can go ahead and shout them out. I'll give you a couple starters, just things off the top of my head. Socks. Why are socks? In my family, socks are like this big thing. They don't fit on their feet right. They don't go on right. They want to complain. As we are walking out of the door, my sock doesn't fit right. The whole shoe, the whole sock comes off, and it's, it's like this meltdown, right? What else? Cleaning. Cleaning. Amen. Can I get an amen, cleaning? No, but like, yeah, your kids complain about cleaning, what else? Each other. Each other. <laughs> I hear that one. What else? Yard work. Yard work. Yard work. What about people with adult kids? What do your kids complain about? Anything. A- anything. Yeah. <laughs> Entire. Okay. Okay. What? A- so I. Okay. All right. So let's move on because this could get really negative really quick. I just want to point out that <laughs> we are complaining about complaining. Just think about that. It's like, that's a weird thing, right, to complain about complaining. So what is it about the human heart? What is it about the human heart that just causes us to want to complain about stuff? So we know from the world of psychology that there are two reasons that people complain. Number one, we complain as a method of communication. So you might think of this like venting. Venting is the most common form. And we do it for validation. It makes us feel like we have other people on our team. So, for example, uh, like you might know somebody, just an example off the top of my head, you might know somebody that complains about the off-ramp at the New Cut Road exit. Just, you know, just, just, just off the top of my head, right? I don't know anybody that does that, especially not anybody that preaches up here, ever. So, the second, the second kind, and this is the, <laughs> this is the more dangerous one, the second kind is, ego, is called ego reinforcement. And this is what we do to reinforce the sense of oneself. And this is dangerous because when we do this, we judge others by either gossiping about them or just something behind their back. This is called downward comparison. We make others less than us to bring ourselves up. So, and psychologically, we know that there's really no long-term benefit to complaining. None at all, except there is one short-term benefit. It makes you feel better in the moment. And that's it. That's it. Just makes you feel better in the moment. None of this information that I just gave you is scriptural, per se, but it does reinforce what Jesus said two millennia ago when he said this. In the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Essentially, what he's saying is that by using downward comparison to make ourselves feel better, the long-term consequence is to live by comparison. 
And I think that complaining is a symptom of something much deeper in our souls. One of my deepest concerns as a pastor is not just complaining, but kind of this undercurrent uh, of anger and negative speech that's become so commonplace in our culture and has seeped into the church in different ways. Instead of dealing with conflict in a healthy way, we often do one of two things. Either one, we pretend that everything is fine even when it's not. We become people pleasers. And the dark side, hear this, the dark side of people pleasing is that it creates this culture of brooding where we just kind of talk behind, about people behind their back. We just kind of complain about them. We hold on to frustrations and grudges. Instead of doing the hard work of working through our differences, either that or we're the kind of people that save up for the big tell-off. And you know what the big tell-off is? It's that thing from reality TV where, like, over the course of several episodes, this person's just, like, simmering. They're just getting real angry. And then all of a sudden, all at once, they blow up and they tell that person off in this big moment, and then, and then later, they're like, man, I feel so good. They had that coming, blah, 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 blah. But all you've done in that moment is create a ton of relational damage. That's it. And now it's harder and harder to get back. You know, we've got a phrase for this, right? We say people that are like this have a short what? Short fuse. But you've isolated yourself further, and now the path back is exponentially more difficult. So under the hood, this is what I see going on. And this may be just my theory, but I think that Scripture backs me up on this. It's that a sense of entitlement, or put another way, the unhealthy need to control a situation are often the catalyst for complaining and anger. And so today we're going to spend most of our time in the book of Philippians, specifically Philippians 2. And my prayer for us is that as we journey through this together, that Paul would do a little bit of work on our hearts. That we become more like Jesus and be the kind of people who would be less prone to complaining and arguing. So the book of Philippians is written to Christians in Macedonia by the Apostle Paul while he's in prison, specifically to the Philippian church. He would have been in a Roman prison at the time. And in Philippians 1, Paul greets the church and encourages them and shares this with them in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And he goes on to explain how, how the gospel is already spread through the prison guards and through the other inmates and captives. And one thing to note here is that Paul seems to be able to see the good despite how bad his circumstances are. Then he goes on to say in Philippians 2 verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So here's what Paul is telling us first and foremost, is that unity is paramount and that we're on the same team. So quick story for you. I've got a, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, two little girls, and they're adorable and they're rambunctious and I love them and they're great. And they don't always get along, which I'm sure might be a surprise. It's not. It should not be a surprise to you. Kids don't ever get along when they should, right? So there's one day that the girls, they're playing in the living room. They've got a big mess out there. They've got coloring sheets all over the floor, and they're coloring. My oldest daughter, Emmeline, she's real meticulous, and so she's coloring in the lines. And she's being artistic, and she's, got, she's just doing her thing. She's in the zone, making her art. Well, Ellie just wants to be a part of what she's doing. Ellie's four years old, so she comes over and starts coloring on the side of the paper, it's a big no-no, 
And, and so Emily gets upset. She's like, hey, sissy, stop doing that. Stop doing that. And so after a minute, Ellie's not stopping. So what does Emily do? She starts coloring on Ellie's paper. So she's over here coloring on this paper. Oh, man. Eloise did not like that. Eloise got mad, grabbed a marker, and across Emily's whole thing. And then there's, like, crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth and then double timeouts, and the girls are off in their own section. I'm playing referee. Everything finally calms down, and the girls come back together. And uh, one thing that we do with our kids, and um, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, um, one thing that we do with our kids is we make them apologize to each other and then say one nice thing about the other. Because our hope is that by telling them, hey, if you say one nice thing about each other, I hope this reminds you that you, you care more about your sister than this small thing that just happened. And so they apologize to each other, and then, like, all right, Emily, say something nice to Ellie. It's like, Ellie, I just, I really like playing with you. It's really fun to play animals with you. It's like, okay, that's the thing they play a lot of times. It's like zoo and whatnot. And so they, all right, that's really sweet. All right, Eloise, this is my four-year-old. Eloise, the same one nice thing about Sissy. And she looks up at Emily and says, Sissy, I really like it when you share your coloring pages with me. I know, maniacal, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so smart. Too smart for her own good. But this is the first part of dealing with anger and entitlement. It's just remembering that we're on the same team. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is saying here is that it's important to keep a proper motivation for why we do things. Why do you do the things that you do, especially in the context of ministry? I've known several people over the years, whether they're just in leadership in the church or are they on church staff, who um, they, they just get caught up in the what more than the why kind of forget why you're doing the things that you're doing. And I think it, we often justify this through phrases like, man, I only want to give God my very best, or like, man, do you, we don't ever want visitors to see something looking like that. And hear me correctly, hear me correctly, I think that excellence is, is, is such a thing to strive for in the church. It really does. Um, it, it is so, it, it's so important. But Jesus is far more concerned about our heart than he is about the things that we do. Paul goes on in, in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. Nothing. What does that mean? Other translations say made himself of no reputation or to make void or emptied himself. And for us, I think there are a couple of quick applications. Number one, first, in a culture obsessed with control, I think it's a pretty radical concept to try to wrap our minds around. How many of us need to empty ourselves of the need to control something? Whether that's a relationship, a circumstance, a health issue, and not to cr criticize, but I just want to note how obsessed our culture is right now with fad dieting. It seems popular to think that you can just kind of heal yourself by changing the foods that you eat right now. And hear me correctly, I think there's a lot of good research and science behind a lot of it. But to me, what I see far more often is people just trying to control 
an uncontrollable circumstance. Second, some of us need to empty ourselves of the need to be right all the time. Jesus had every right to show up in glory and power and come and be served. He had every right to show up in rule and power, but instead he chose to empty himself and take on the form of a servant. I think this tells us a lot about the character of God, how God is, what he is like. And this may be a word that you need to hear today. Maybe you're in a conflict or part of a conflicted relationship. And whatever happened to you, you're 100% right. You are. I mean it. You're 100% right. You have every right to cut them out and be angry or to hold them accountable for what they did. But instead, God is calling you to empty yourself and live at peace with that person. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let me nerd out on you for just a second if I could. You all know I'm a little nerdy, right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I take that as a compliment. Um, something really interesting about this region, Philippi is governed under a law called Ius Italicum. I'll put that up on the screen here. Ius Italicum. Say that with me. Congratulations. You're well on your way to becoming a Latin scholar. So, great job. Anyway, what this essentially means is that while Philippi was not in Italy, which is the country of, of Rome, the Roman government where they're based, it was governed under Italian law instead of local law. So, as a, you know, if you're there and you're a Roman citizen, that means that you can buy and sell property, and you're also exempt from what's called land tax and poll tax, so you don't have to pay taxes on, on, on a lot of stuff. And then you're also entitled to uh, protection under Roman law, so nobody's going to come and ransack your business. So, you know, in Philippi, we think it's, it's in the ancient Mediterranean. The Mediterranean's a beautiful region really temperate weather. So you've got, so you put this all together, like this is a really wealthy area. There's a lot of good stuff going on here. So if you're, if you're a, a self-made man or woman, you're a business person, you're going to want to be a part of this. So it, you, you've attracted all these business leaders and politicians and like, just think like retirement homes, like homes on the lake. Like this is a nice area. And here, Paul seems to be reiterating Jesus' words from Matthew 20, 26, where he says, Whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. So just an interesting thought for us. Because you, you look at these people and you think, man, this is the definition of success. But what if success and leadership has less to do with being in charge and more to do with serving? What if leadership wasn't about more control but about more sacrifice? What if leadership isn't about speaking your truth so much as being a non-anxious presence to others. When it comes to biblical theology about leadership, particularly in, particularly in the church, God's not looking for domineering personalities. Hear me, he's not looking for high Ds on the disc assessment. He's not looking for somebody with an MBA or somebody who started a small business. God is looking for those with a servant's heart. Not someone who's trying to get ahead or just make a buck. Think about King David. I think about King David. He had no earthly qualifications for king, but he was simply content to serve his family by tending and caring for the sheep. 
And to this day, he's still remembered as Israel's greatest king because he understood serving. If you want to lead, it starts with serving. Empty yourself of your preferences, your expectations, your rights, and just serve. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, if you as, all, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So salvation can kind of be, it can be kind of a Christian-y word, right? I think it's helpful to remember the etymology of the English word salvation. It said it comes from the Greek word soteria. You say soteria? Soteria. soteria. Roll your R. Come on, you got this. Soteria. soteria. Yes, great. Latin scholars, Greek scholars, you guys are so good at this. Good job. Great job. So while it literally means to save, it shares a common history with the word solve. Think like healing ointment. And thereby implying that healing is a part of the salvation process. So think about that. Part of being saved is the healing of your soul, the healing of your, your spiritual being. Also the phrase fear and trembling. Fear can also be translated as great respect or reverence. But when it's coupled with trembling, this is really interesting. I learned this this week. It implies anxiety or fatigue. So think, think of it this way, especially for those who, who exercise or runners. Imagine that shaky fatigue feeling that you get, like at the, end of a, at the end of a race when you push yourself really hard. Like this doesn't come on that easy day at the gym where you get off the treadmill and you're like, man, I feel great. This is when you have pushed yourself past your limits, that like shaky fatigue, anxious feeling that you get. It's, it's when you go beyond where you believe you're capable of going. And I think this is a helpful metaphor for our spiritual journey, that God will sometimes push us to places that we believe are beyond ourselves. So, if I was, if I was a scholar like Eugene Peterson, I might translate this passage to say something like this. Continue to work toward completeness in Christ and the healing of your soul while understanding that there is no end to this work because God is never done working on any of us. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Just sit in that for a minute. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Doesn't that sting a little bit? I think that stings. And there is something important here that we need to remember, and this is where the rubber really meets the road. When we are doing the work of God and when we are serving, a telltale sign that our heart is in the wrong place is that we're quick to grumble and complain. And I wish I could stand up here and say, man, I've got this down. Follow me as I follow Christ. That, I, I don't. I am still in process. I'm still working through this. And you, some of you are going like, yeah, John, we've heard you complain before. We know. And um, so I just, I'm going to tell you about uh, something that happened to me a couple years ago. Um, so I went, up to, I went up to northern Indiana to visit my buddy Russ, and, and we're hanging out, and he, um, he's got a couple artists who were, uh, were uh, you know, this metal show. So we went to this metal show, and some of, some of you hear me say metal show, and you're thinking, like, oh, like, like metal, like art making, like, you know, crafting metal. No. Like, think heavy metal. Think, like, rock and roll. Think double bass drum pedals and, like, chugga 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 like, on the electric guitars. Some of you are hearing me talk about this, and you're going, oh, John. I had no idea. And others of you are, are, are holding your head going, oh, John, I had no idea. And anyway, so I'm at this metal show, and, and, and metal, metal music may not be like my, my, my most favorite preference, right? 
but I can, I can hang. I have appreciate it. And there's some really talented artists there, so it was pretty cool. But what was killing me was the sound. It sounded so bad. At one point, I went over and put my hand on, on one of the subwoofers. I don't even think it was on. And I'm, I'm looking, you know, like I, I do audio stuff, right? And so I'm looking at, at the drum set and the mic placement on it's just all off. And I'm watching this guy. He's running around with an iPad, like mixing. But everybody at this venue has earplugs in because the irritating frequencies are so amplified. Man, and here I'm getting into it. Here I'm complaining, right? So <laughs> this is so bad. Um, but I, I am just belly aching about this. I am just complaining about it all night. And at one point, my friend Russ is just like, John, dude, you're going to have to let this go. You have no control over this situation. Like, but, but, but he didn't even have that. Man, I, should I go up and talk to him? Should I go tell him? And they're like, no, you absolutely shouldn't. You have no control of this situation. And, and I didn't hear this at the time, but this is when I, this is, was a moment for me that I look back on and I think, man, this is a moment where God really started to do a work on me. Because I realized that I wrestle with a lot of control issues. Some of you are going, John, we know. We know this. I, but I do. I wrestle with a lot of control issues. And what God has shown me is that my control issues are rooted in pride. My deeply held belief is that I could have done a better job mixing than that guy at the metal show. And it really doesn't matter whether or not I'm right about that, does it? It really doesn't. So why should I have been there? I should have been there to support my friend and the artist that he's friends with. Why was I there? I was actually there to show my friend how smart I think I am and to reinforce my ego against criticism and music in my own context. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like the stars as you hold firmly to the word of life. So how do we do this? How do we do this? I want to spend the rest of our time today uh, exploring a paradigm from Ronald Ruhlheiser. Ronald Ruhlheiser has got a book, and I think it's, I really encourage you to read it. Anybody who's, who's just kind of like entering your 30s or that second half of life, it's just about spirituality in the second half of life. And um, he's got this paradigm where he explains that uh, as, you, as you enter into maturity in Christ, your life ends in one of three trajectories. The old fool, the embittered fool, and the holy fool. So first, the old fool. This is the person who, as they age, they just don't really take the teachings of Jesus too seriously. They often lack maturity, both emotional and spiritual avoidance and distraction are key aspects of their lives, and they continue living under this illusion of upward mobility, that like, man, like, things are going to keep getting better, I'm going to stay young forever, like, into their, their 20s and, and into their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and their life just never really seems to go anywhere, they never settle down, right? We all know people like this. So if you think about the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, this would be like younger brother spirituality, Right? The second, and where I want to spend a little bit more of our time, is the embittered fool. The embittered fool is someone who follows Jesus, but over time, they become complacent and pharisaical, and they lose the fruits of the Spirit in their life to those things. And here's what I mean. So you're passionate about, your, uh, about Jesus early on, but you allow entitlement and the need to control choke out many, if not all, of the fruits of the Spirit in your life. I love this quote from Tim Keller. This is how he puts it. And this is his commentary on the story of the prodigal son. So if the younger brother is the old fool, 
in that story. Then the older brother is the inverter fool. And he says this, you see why elder brother lostness and younger brother lostness are both terrible. Younger brother lostness with its self-indulgence and addiction brings a lot of misery into this world. But elder brother lostness, you can see it. Look at his anger. He's always angry. Why is he angry? It's because he's lived such a good life that God the Father owes him to do things his way. And of course, your life never, except for a few years at a time, ever goes the way that you want. If you're living a good life because you think you deserve a good life, you're always going to have an undercurrent of anger. You're always going to be looking down on other people. So, how do you know if you've become an embittered fool or the older brother from the story of the prodigal sons? Let's take a quick inventory. Let's go through the fruits of the Spirit with me, starting first with love. Are you a person whose, whose faith is marked by your love for others? Or have you lost love to impatience? Are you full of joy? Or is your life marked by busyness? Is your life marked by peace? Or are you surrounded by fear and anxiety? Are you a patient person? Is patience in you? Or are you always in a hurry to get to the next thing? Are you kind? Or do you exhibit the need to be right in every situation? Is your life full of goodness, moral goodness? Or do you forego that for the sake of convenience? Is your life marked by faithfulness in, in what God is doing in you, in other people? Or do you exhibit the need to control outcomes? Are you a gentle person? Is your life marked by gentleness? Or have you allowed entitlement to make you brash and harsh with other people? And finally, is your life marked by self-control? Or is it marked by addiction? And when I talk about addiction, I'm not just talking about addiction to drugs and alcohol. I'm also talking about addiction to things like food, Netflix. Where do you go when you're tired? Where do you go when you rest? Do you have self-control in your life? And the good news here is that we can all continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in hopes to become what Rollheiser calls the holy fool. The holy fool is someone who accepts the invitation to go on the inward journey of emotional healing and spiritual growth. They are a person who is not prone to complaining or arguing. They choose to, be, they choose to see people as God has created them, not as they would prefer for them to be. They are quick to offer help to those in need, and they have plenty of margin in their time and their finances to do so. There's someone who redefines the metrics of success in their life, from things like accomplishment and accumulation to things like relationships, and holiness, generosity. They're a non-anxious presence to those around you. They're the kind of people who, when you're talking to them, you feel like you're the only person in the room. They're listening first, asking good questions in conversation. They exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And every single one of you is capable of becoming this holy fool. Can you imagine how powerful it would be if you were the only person in your workplace who didn't complain about your boss, but rather you actively prayed for him or her and encouraged other people to do the same? You know, people live up or down to our expectations. 
Imagine what would happen if you started lifting them up. Or what if instead of arguing with that difficult family member at the next holiday, you would empty yourself and forego the need to be right and just be good, to become a non-anxious presence in that person's life? You know, the funny thing is, oftentimes when we do that, we actually gain more influence in their life than we do when we try to tell them the right thing to do. Or what about, the next, what about that person at work or at church that always forgets to do that thing that they always forget to do, that thing that just always annoys you and irks you? Is it possible that instead of focusing on who they are not, that you could instead focus on who God has made them to be on who they are and encourage them instead? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, and only then, will you shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would do a deep work in our soul today. And Lord, I thank you for, uh, for this church and, and just how many people I know uh, that, that have blessed my life and encouraged me and challenged me to seek you, to empty myself because they've emptied themselves. Lord, I really, I really, truly thank you for those people who are here. Lord, for the maturity that exists in this place, for the honor and for the sacrifice, years of sacrifice of those who have been here. Lord, we honor that today. But Lord, for, for those of us who, who have places that we need to move into. Maturity and healing. Lord, I pray that you would start us on that journey. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you all next week.